Let's thank him together. Grace greater than all our sins. Savior beyond our understanding to fully fathom, but close enough to actually become a human being. Thank you, Lord, to live among us, to show us the very person of God, to take our sin, our failure, our weakness, our frailty, our pride to the cross and die in our place so that we could live forever, not only in heaven, but live here fully now with your own life. Thank you. Help me to speak well of you. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who have led us to worship you in music. Help us now to worship you through your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. How's 2018 going? How many of you made resolutions? How many of you have already broken resolutions? I broke a New Year's resolution on the second day of the year in the first possible moment that I could have broken it, my resolution was not to forget a single appointment, and I was late for my first appointment of 2018. So embarrassing. So embarrassing. I am so glad that you're here, and this is the time of year when people who want to grow and learn and hear from God begin reading their Bible, sometimes for the first time, sometimes in a new way, this year, we're inviting you as a church family to read the Foundations 260, F260 reading plan, it's called. There's plenty of copies on the tables on your way out. Um, I have this one here. It's a very simple Bible reading plan that will take you through the Bible from the beginning to end, giving you the crucial readings across the Bible so that you can follow the thread of Scripture. It's about two chapters a day, five days a week, and it includes memory verses. Our family's doing it together. I bought a little journal that uh, you can get online. Uh, so we're all reading the same things. We're hopefully we'll be talking together about what we're reading and what we're learning. Got the most encouraging text message from a guy in our church. He's a solid, committed, godly man, but for whatever reason, he told me via text, He'd always been sort of independent in his reading, not even reading along in the same passages as his wife. He's changed that. They're doing this together, and he reports one weekend it's having a wonderful effect. So you're all welcome to join us. If you're on my church-wide email, you would have received this a couple of weeks ago as well. There's an electronic version. I mean, it's so easy now to have the Word of God close to you if only you will set the time aside. And that's sort of the something I want to talk to you about today. If you open your Bibles, you can find the passage toward the end of your New Testament in the book called Titus. Look in Titus chapter 2. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, that'll be right at the end of the Bible, probably about 40 or 50 pages from the back, you'll find a short little book. It's actually a letter called Titus. It has that name because the Apostle Paul is going around having his life literally turned around by Jesus. Paul, the former skeptic, the religious, zealous Pharisee who didn't believe a word about Jesus, met him in person and became his greatest representative, his greatest preacher on earth. Paul has literally gone across the Roman Empire starting churches, and he has left Titus, 
who Paul has invested in and brought to faith and taught him how to lead, how to be a godly man and how to be a leader in the local church, Paul has left Titus behind, the letter tells us, on the island of Crete. And he's given him a tough assignment. Titus is catching it from all sides. There are people who share Paul's former Judaism who have followed Paul and said, whatever he's telling you, he's a fraud, he's an imposter. He denies the faith. He's going to keep you away from God. If you're not circumcised and you don't keep the law and you don't keep the traditions, God will have nothing to do with you. So he's got that crowd fighting him, and he also has the everyday ancient world pagans of the island of Crete itself. And young Titus is really finds himself in a difficult position, and if you read the whole letter, and if you never have, I encourage you to do it today. You can read it in about 15 or 20 minutes. Titus is told to put everything in order and to leave elders, leave pastors behind in all the churches everywhere they are in Crete. Well, it's a big assignment. And this little letter is basically a manual of what kind of people should be pastors and how Christians should behave. You can get a flavor for it. I'm in chapter 2. Look at verse 15. Look how stern this is. It says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And if Paul's giving him that kind of drill instructor talk, you know that Titus obviously needs some encouragement. Don't let anyone push you aside, don't let anyone from any of these parties, any of these people who contradict you, who are interested in fables, who are interested in disputing tiny things that they find in the law, don't have anything to do with that. You tell them the truth and don't back down. And in the paragraph above this, which is what I want to share with you, Paul is going to remind Titus of grace. There's probably not, aside from the name of Jesus himself, there's probably not a word that Christians use more often than the word grace. The most beloved hymn in the English-speaking language, probably, amazing grace. And if it has bagpipes, it's perfect, right? What a great hymn. But what is grace? Well, grace is undeserved favor. Grace is something that you could not compel, you could not demand or expect from anyone. It's given you simply because they want to bless you and help you in that way. Think for a moment. Leaving aside what God has done for you, which is what matters most, what's the most gracious thing a human being has done for you on earth? Think back to that. If you've had a moment of grace from somebody, you know what a powerful experience that is. One of the most astonishing things I've ever read, I read a few months ago, two strangers met and had one of those soul-bearing conversations that people do, thinking perhaps they'll never see that person again, and one man told the other that he was in desperate need of a kidney. And it was on the transplant list, but he could not find a donor. And just like that, a complete stranger offered and went on to give his kidney to this man he had just met, and his life was saved. That's grace. Couldn't ask that. You imagine walking up to a stranger, hey, could you have a, you have a kidney to spare? 
Chances are very high that you do. Could I have one of your internal organs? I mean, that's, that's just not a conversation you could ever have with someone. That might be a difficult thing even to ask of somebody inside your own family. For a stranger to do it, that's grace. Now, God's grace is greater. We've been celebrating it at Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate and remember the historic event that Jesus, who is the Son of God, who made us and everything around us, actually became one of us for the single solitary purpose of taking our place. Not only to give us an example, certainly is that to be much more than an example, to actually be a substitute, a rescuer, a savior. And what the Bible tells me across its many pages and using a lot of different word images to help me get the point is that Jesus faced every shameful, dirty, rotten thing that I've ever faced, that has ever tempted me, Jesus faced those temptations in the same way that I do, but without sin. And having lived a perfectly obedient life to God the Father and keeping His righteous standard, Jesus went to the cross to die for my sins because He had none of His own. And the resurrection proves that Jesus was accepted, that the payment was full, that the payment was precious to God, and now this wide open door is open before anyone who will trust Jesus. That's grace, and that's what Paul reminds Titus of. Look with me in Titus 2, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the astonishing thing about God's love and grace. It offers salvation to everyone, including, Titus would be quick to remember, these people that are driving him crazy. The pagans, the unbelievers, the religious arguers, the kind of men that Paul used to be Jesus has appeared, the grace of God has now shown up, has now been manifested in the world, and it brings salvation for all kinds of different people. That's the announcement of the gospel. If you're new to our church, that's our message week in, week out. From this pulpit in small groups, we cannot be good enough ever for God. His grace covers us. It's not so much a matter of what Jesus would do, but what Jesus actually did to bring us into the family of God. That announcement of grace that takes guilt and shame out of the picture, because it's not your life that's being judged, it's the life of Jesus that is being judged. You've traded places with Him. Paul tells the Colossians, Christ is your life. It's not only that He gives it, He is your life. He's with you. He's in you. You're part of Him. That grace, Paul says in verse 11, showed up at a specific time in the world. And have you ever asked yourself, if you know that grace and you depend upon it, have you ever asked yourself why God did all that? See, grace has a purpose. The man who went to surgery and went through the painful ordeal of having a kidney removed so that that kidney could be gifted to a man he just met. He had something in mind. 
There was something in that man's eyes, there was something he heard in that man's story that made a stranger determined to save another man's life. It wasn't a gesture. He had the intention of exercising that grace to save a life. Have you ever asked yourself what God's point is in giving you so much grace? See, because the natural temptation is for us, like little children, to just say, thanks, and run off and do our own thing. Never asking if there was a greater purpose. Well, verse 12 answers the question. And I want to ask you and answer this question from Scripture. Why does God give us grace? Verse 12 begins the answer. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Watch the verb there. The grace of God has shown up and it's doing something for us. What's it doing? It's training us. If you don't catch anything else that I say today, there's more to it, but if you take a single practical concept, I would like it to be this. In your walk with God this year, as you start that reading plan, as you have new resolve, and maybe you've even written it down as a resolution, how you're going to grow in your faith this year, start with this. Stop trying and start training. And there's a big difference. Let me explain it to you this way. Suppose a man, like so many, influenced by 24-hour fitness commercials where everybody looks amazing, right? And people glisten with muscular sweat in every moment, and they all look beautiful, and they're all at least no older than 30, and beautifully turned out, and the girl's makeup is perfect, and the hair swivels just right, right? She swings that kettlebell. A guy sees all those commercials, he gets inspired, and he says, you know, I'm going to try to run a marathon on Monday. (laughs) Now, just so you know, this guy's 48, and he hasn't laced up a pair of tennis shoes in anger since he was a senior in high school. But motivated by all these things and a few Instagram posts and a few things he saw his friends say they were going to do on Facebook, on Monday, he's going to run a marathon. What chance do you give him? But what if he tries? I mean, what if he really, really tries? What if he fills his iPhone with motivational music and a digital coach that will see the falling footsteps and get on there and jump up and down verbally and really get after him and really motivate him? What chance do you give him? Still zero. Because you never try to run a marathon. How could anyone ever run 26.2 miles? What do they do? They train. See, that man, if he's healthy, he actually could. But he'd have to stop trying and he'd have to start training. He'd have, if he's really out of shape, he'd have to see if he could walk around the block first. (laughs) And having done that, Maybe he could walk around the block twice the day after that. And then maybe after a week of walking, he realizes it doesn't hurt anymore. He's not challenged anymore. So he breaks into a little jog for about 20 yards at a time while he goes around the block. And he gets a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And before you know it, he's running a 5K and then he runs a half marathon. And a year after he started training... He actually succeeds in running a marathon. 
That's how life works. That's how people develop. What happens with Christians? Something will motivate them like the turning of the calendar or a sermon or a worship song will come on and you hit the steering wheel and you say, that's it, I'm a new person. I'm trying hard from this moment forward and about 14 hours later you say to yourself, well, that didn't work. See, some people will give up on their Bible reading altogether next week because they weren't perfect in the first two weeks of the year. That's not how training works. If you're in training, if you have a bad day, you miss a day, you get sick, you don't quit, you just go right back. If you find that you couldn't do the things you could do a month ago, you train back up and you keep making an effort. So please, in your walk with Jesus, please stop trying and do start training. That's why Paul told Timothy that he should train himself for godliness. It's not a matter of individual one-time effort. It's a matter of walking with God day after day. I'm going to be as practical as I can. Here's my perfect morning. It doesn't happen every morning, but it happens most mornings, and here's what it looks like. I wake up about an hour and a half before anybody else in my house. It's not a matter of nobility. I just can't sleep as long as I used to. It drives me crazy. So my eyes fly open at about a quarter to five, and I lay there and lament for about a minute that, yes, this is actually me getting up now. And I get up and I go to the coffee because nothing happens in my life before coffee. And I'm about to have a personal meeting. And if you're going to have a good personal meeting, you have to be awake and attentive to the person you're meeting with, right? So coffee helps, and I think God understands that. I think that's the purpose He gave us coffee. <laughs> then I sit down in a chair, and I pray. And it's not a very coherent prayer because it's only a few minutes after five. But I basically take time to quiet myself and realize that I now have the privilege of addressing my Creator, my King, who's also my Father. And He's already awake, and He's always paying attention. And with all that He has to do and with all that He is, He can pay perfect, beautiful attention just to me. And He's having meetings like this all over the world. And having prayed, I opened my Bible. And in keeping with whatever I've decided for that month, that week, for that year that the reading is going to be, I start reading. And when I don't understand something, I stop and I ask Him in prayer, what is it that I'm to learn from this? How do I study this? What does this mean? Who can help me? What books do I have? What friends do I have that can help me understand this passage? And we just talk. He speaks through His Word. I speak to Him in prayer. And in 15 or 20 minutes, or it depends on the morning, I thank Him for what I've heard. I go out to meet the day. And in a perfect morning, I then go and exercise for 45 minutes to an hour. Thank you for not laughing like the 9 o'clock service did. Now, what does that create? Given enough mornings like that, our relationship gets closer. Given enough time, given enough mornings like that, the secrets that I've hid in my heart start to be exposed by His Word. I keep meeting with Him, and He says, now look, son, this right here, you're blowing it here. You're way out of bounds. 
This passage that I'm sharing with you today first caught my attention three years ago. I've been trying to make sense of it to put it in a sermon on and off for about three years. I think this is the weekend. And the point of all this is, back to Titus, the grace of God has shown up and it is training us. And now Paul's going to say it's going to train us not to do things and to do other things. In other words, there's a negative and a positive side to training, and that's the way training always works. Paul says, first, it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, grace teaches us, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the old life. Ungodliness is the way you used to live before God came into your life. Worldly passions are the things that used to thrill you and delight you, used to satisfy you, used to cause your excitement. Those old things that belong to the old life and the old world, you are to say no to them. And that's countercultural in American Christianity in the 21st century. For a lot of reasons that I won't theorize about right now, we have developed a, an approach to teaching what God has said in His Word that is almost completely positive. In other words, we only say the yeses, we never mention the noes. It's rare to hear a no in public teaching and worship in the church anymore. And if you think about that, that's crazy. Everything else in the world, if you are being trained in some great calling, in some great task, in some great profession, the curriculum is going to have a lot of do's and a lot of don'ts. If, you're te if they're teaching you to shoot a gun, one of the primary things they're going to tell you not to do is to point the gun at people. That's a good thing. They're going to tell you not to put your finger on the trigger until you're absolutely ready to shoot and well-aimed. That's a good thing. Parents, do you ever say no to your children? I hope you do. There's also an affirmative side. There's a positive side. Keep reading. Titus 2, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There is things that we are saying yes to, but first you have to hear both the no's and the yeses. This is not an isolated idea in Scripture. Ephesians 4, Paul speaking to another group of new Christians rescued out of really rank paganism, and their religion would involve all kinds of sexual immorality. They would consider probably drunkenness a spiritual experience. This is a rough bunch. They're very far from the grace and the holiness of God, and here's what Paul told the Ephesians. Read it with me. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now let's stop right there. Did you catch that? That's a strong no. You used to live a certain way, now you no longer must do that. Start again from the beginning. We'll read the whole thing through now. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Do you hear the no? Stop it. That's the old life. That's not you anymore. That's not who you are. That's not who Jesus died to make you. Turn your back decisively on the old life. If you don't hear that, you'll never grow as God intended because if you're going to say yes to godliness, you must learn to say no to a great number of other things. And there, yes, of course, there is things that you affirm, things that you embrace in this new identity. One of the most beautiful examples I ever saw of this was a friend in Mexico who's now with the Lord. Felipe Ordoñez became a wonderful pastor. And what comfort and skill I might have in making hospital visits, I learned from him. And if ever you were sick and in a bad way, this was the pastor you wanted to visit because he was so tenderhearted. He had suffered a great deal, and because God teaches us through both our scars and our stars, the things that hurt us and the things that we succeed at. God had taken all the pain in his life. He was one of those boys in Mexico City that you see trying to sell things at the stoplights. And being a kid who said, and he's funny too, he said, you know, my shoes were so thin I could step on a piece of gum and know what flavor it was. (laughs) Poor, man. And he grew up selling things at stoplights, watching boys his age go to private schools and limousines. And he wondered why. And trying to find the answer in the 60s led him first to communism and then to atheism. And he trained in the Soviet Union and Cuba as an economist to bring those ideals back into Mexico. Along the way, seeking pleasure in everything except in God, which he firmly believed did not exist, he also became a rampant womanizer and a terrible alcoholic. But God, in his grace, put another college student in a room in an apartment that they shared, and this man was a strong Christian and would go on to be a pastor before Felipe did. And when he would hear Felipe hit the door, rip-roaring drunk, blasting music, laughing, and deliberately talking as loudly as he could to the girl he'd brought home about the things they were going to do, just to annoy the Christian. This man would drop to his knees and start praying for Felipe. Well, that eventually had an effect, and a near-suicide attempt led him instead to give his life to Christ at an evangelistic campaign. And then, because he had no one to mentor him, at that moment, that man left his life and moved halfway across the country, having no one to walk the first steps with Jesus with him, not knowing any better, never having heard any of the no's. He just kept living the old life, but he told me the decisive moment came when he was sitting in a bar with a drink in front of him, as he always did, and he looked around, saw the atmosphere, saw the people, saw the expressions on their faces, and something inside said to him, what am I doing here? This isn't me anymore. This is not who I am. And he walked out, and that was it. Years later, through a lot of experiences and a lot of people that God moved into his life, he became one of the godliest, most fruitful pastors that I've ever had the pleasure to serve with. Now, why did this happen? 
Not everybody's story is so dramatic, but God's intent is always the same. He wants you to say no to your old life and yes to the new life, which will be self-controlled, upright, and godly, Titus says. The point of all this is that God's grace is meant to lead to your growth. Every single one of you. There's this terrible idea that somehow I think, I don't know where it comes from, the world, the flesh, the devil, poor self-esteem, overbearing mother, I have no idea where this idea comes from. But a lot of Christians label themselves practically from their new birth that they're just kind of on the slow track of Christianity. And other people may read and understand the Bible, and other people may talk to God in prayer and have their prayer answered, but those people are just, God made them out of different stuff. This is just me. I just kind of go to church and try to hang on. Does that experience make sense to any of you? Listen, Jesus said when you became a Christian, you experienced the new birth. You were born again. And that word picture is very deliberate. It means that you were born into God's family and He made you, He gave you the actual life of Jesus. And what that means is your spiritual potential is actually unlimited. The ceiling you put on your godliness, the only ceiling that exists is the ceiling you put on it for yourself. A lot of you met me about 25 pounds ago. Because I had a good friend in this church who sadly moved away to Tennessee, and he, through shame, guilt, and a lot of things that no friend should ever say to another, got me in shape. And I'm trying to get back there again. And I've got a couple guys I text with that are in much better shape than I am, but we've got this little text community thing. They tell me what they've done. I'm awed, and I, but I'm trying. You know, I'm doing, doing a couple things. And I texted them yesterday and said, you know, boys, I had a good workout. I'm beginning to think I could have been a professional athlete. (laughs) I said, looking back, I think all that stood between me and a professional athletic career was footwork, strength, a lot more athleticism, and probably some determination. You know, if I only could have had those four things, I could have been a contender. Now, why did you laugh? Well, it's pretty obvious why you laughed. When you see professional athletes, or if you have been one, or you've been up close with people of that caliber, God really did make them out of a whole other genetic box. They're just made out of different stuff. The biggest guys you'll see on your TV screen, if you watch football this afternoon, the biggest ones are also faster than I am over a short period. And that's amazing. No one who weighs 315 pounds should be able to run and jump like that, but they can. Why? Because God just made them different. Their strength coaches don't even have to be that good. God made them strong. Of course they're strong. They're in the NFL. That's just the way they are. And a lot of people bring that kind of thinking over into their spiritual life. And they say, well, yeah, sure, the pastor gets it. Oh, yeah, my Sunday school teacher, my grandma, she she was just different. No, you have every bit of that potential because you have been, please understand this, you have been born again. 
And everything that Christ is and everything that Christ does is now available to you. So you're training to be like Him, but keep reading. While you're training, verse 13 says you're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying just as the grace of God appeared one day and Jesus was born and walked among us, we're now waiting for His return. He will appear again. You're waiting for Jesus. And Jesus, if you look carefully at verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might want to make a note of this. The Bible uses the word hope in a different way than we do. When we say hope, what we mean is, I wish. We say, I hope that happens. The New Testament uses the word in this way, the hope that we have in Christ What makes it hope is it hasn't happened yet, but it is certainly going to. It is the settled assurance of a blessing in the future. So Paul says the grace of God has shown up in our lives and it's training us to change our life and all the while we are waiting for the return of Jesus who is, catch this, he is both God and Savior. Sometimes people ask me, can you show me a place in the Bible where it clearly says that Jesus is God? Here it is. We are waiting for the return of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of you who are interested in Greek grammar, there is a grammatical rule here called the Granville Sharp Rule that says that both of these words, God and Savior, are both referring to Jesus. It's like me saying, I'd like you to meet my friend and attorney, Mike Connolly. I'm not going to introduce you to two different people. Mike is both my friend and my attorney. Both of those things are true about him. We just have two dimensions in our relationship. As you train, as you allow grace to train you, it's important to remember Jesus is not only your Savior, He is also your what? Your God. He's in charge. See, this is one of the deformations of 21st century American Christianity. Some people only want Jesus as a rescuer. They don't want him as God. They'll take the rescue, but they won't acknowledge that he's in charge. He is both God and Savior. I've been rescued a couple different times in my life from really physical disaster. When I was a young kid, probably about 13 years old, we were at a youth camp in New Mexico. We were On a pretty steep little trail, I slipped and would have fallen probably about nine feet. But a 20-year-old guy who was ahead of me heard the rocks fall off, turned around quickly, and caught my arm as I started to go over the side. Saved me. That didn't make him my boss. I thanked him. I saw him six months ago. We're all grown up now. I actually brought it up. We laughed a little bit about it, and I said, you know, thank you for the 15th time for saving my clumsy self up there on that mountain. But I didn't put him in charge of me. From that day forward, I didn't call and say, Elio, it's Tuesday. Is there anything I should do for you today, sir? No, you just, you take him as a rescuer and you move on. Jesus is much more than that. He is both God and Savior. 
and he's coming. You're training, you're changing, you're growing, you're active in the certain light of his return. I saw a bumper sticker a few years ago that made me laugh. Maybe you've seen it too. It made me laugh, and it's almost correct. Here's the bumper sticker. Jesus is coming back. Look busy. You know what's inaccurate about that? The look part. See, when kids look busy, they're not actually doing anything, right? This is the fourth grade class. The teacher has to step outside for about two minutes. Chaos engulfs the classroom, right? Civilization breaks down. All social norms are thrown out the window. And there is just absolute bedlam until the door starts swinging open again and everybody's very studious when kids trying to look thoughtful. That's looking busy. The last part of this passage and the last part of this sermon tells me that we're waiting for Jesus, and we actually not should be looking busy, we actually should be busy. Look at 1 John 2.28. Read this with me, in fact. It says, and now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. He really is coming. Your time is short. Either by your death or his return, you only have a short amount of time. So Titus says, verse 14, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That means that he bought us back at the cost of his own life. He bought us back from sinfulness, from lawlessness, to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You're not your own anymore. The point of grace was never for you to do whatever pleased you. You belong to Jesus now. You have a God and a Savior who loves you, and those people, a people for his own possession who are, what's the last few words? People who belong to Jesus are to be what? Zealous for good works. What's it mean to be zealous? Somebody said fired up, passionate. Give me a couple other synonyms. Excited, Excited, eager, dedicated. The reason some of you met me 25 pounds ago, maybe 30, is because there was a time when I was actually dedicated to a reasonable diet and fitness. And as long as I was zealous for that, it showed up last, oh, I don't know how many years, a good number of years now. No need to talk about numbers. I've been zealous for pizza and ice cream and pretty much anything on Taco Bell's menu, and your passions show up. What you behold and the way you behave actually determines the kind of person you become. And Paul says, the grace of God has shown up in your life, and it's training you to say no to your old life. It's training you and giving you the spiritual capacity at any time because you were a new creation to say no to the life that you had before you met Jesus and say yes to a new, righteous, self-controlled, upright, godly life. He's coming back. Now be busy and be zealous. Be eager to do good works. One of the greatest misunderstandings about grace is that it makes good works optional. Here's the biblical truth. No one can be saved by good works. 
Not one single person in the world can ever be saved by good works, but listen, you are saved for good works. It says here that Jesus was dying to make people for his own possession. In other words, you don't belong to yourself. You never did. You either belong to your old life and your old passions and things in which you now take no pleasure things that only left you shame and guilt, that's the old life. Now you've been given the capacity to turn your back on that and to say yes to a life of good works. So in this year, as you grow with God and you keep that appointment, what God will continually be telling you, beginning in your own family, are the kinds of good works that He has given you to do. They'll be different for you. They'll be custom-made based on who God made you and what He has brought you through and what He has saved you from. But make no, make no mistake, God has good work for you to do in the world. I wouldn't embarrass them and tell their story, but this week I had the most extraordinary conversation with the newer family in our church who is extending themselves purely for love of Jesus to such an incredibly sacrificial degree, giving an astonishing amount of money to another family. Our church is helping a little bit. They're doing the lion's share because they believe that's what God called them to do to keep a mother and children out of harm's way. Who would do such a thing? Jesus. Why does He bring people together? Why does He give you your experiences? Why did He wait till the precise moment He did to save you? Why has He brought this church, your friends, your family, all the success and all the pain, what has he been orchestrating through all that to give you the life you have now, the full, unbridled, unlimited, no ceiling potential in Christ to grow you into godliness so that you look more and more like Jesus, waiting for Jesus to return and being busy, being zealous, being into it, being dedicated to the good works that he's given you to do. If you're just coming to church and keeping that habit, it's a good start, but God has so much more for you. My simple invitation to you is that you will start keeping the appointment early or late, that you would bring a few other people, as a lot of you already have, into your circle to say, here's what I'm reading, here's how I'm growing, that you would stop trying and that you would keep showing up for training first with God and then with others. And as He grows you and as He changes you, that you would continually ask and be ready to answer when you say to Him, Father, you've given me all this grace. What is the good work you've put me here to do? If we had six or 700 people in this church walking together, hearing from God, being committed to that kind of growth, there is literally no telling what eternal difference it would make because, church, the point of God's grace is our godliness every single one of you. If you trusted Christ in this service last week and you really don't know the front of the Bible from the back, the point of God's grace right now with the life you already have is for you to grow into godliness. If you've been walking like I talked to a senior citizen after the first service and she referred to at my age and how hard it is, but you know what I see in that lady in the five years we've been talking? Every year the questions get better. Every year the projects get godlier because she's continuing to grow. And whether God calls her home or Jesus comes back, she's going to be one of those who meets Jesus with confidence. Why? Because I can see as another fellow Christian, I can see her moving from here 
to there because that's what Christians do in response to God's grace. Let's pray together. First of all, and perhaps most importantly, can I talk to you who are right on the fence of trusting Jesus? You've been putting it off. You've been hanging around Him. You've been listening to Jesus. You've been admiring Him, but you just haven't crossed the line of faith. You haven't humbled yourself and say, Jesus, I'm giving up. Please save me. I'm putting you in charge. If that's your situation, if you're an inch away from trusting Him, I'm inviting you right now in His name to take the final step, to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please rescue me. Please take over. I welcome you as my Savior and my God. You don't need the right words. You just need to place your trust in Him. You can speak to Him from your own heart, with your own words, putting a simple faith in Him that you can't save yourself, but you're asking and trusting Him to do it, and He will. And if you do that, please find the card in your bulletin, and like someone does almost every week, let us know that you have said no to the old life, and you've said yes to Jesus this morning. And Christian, don't Don't sell Jesus short. It's not about you and your capacity. It's about His life. If you've given up on growth, if you've given up on godliness, if you've given up on good works, you've just failed to believe who He is, what He can do. Maybe you're just so tired of trying and failing. Could I remind you this is all grace? It's grace, it's undeserved love that gave you this life. Could I invite you to go back to Him and say, Father, here I am. I've been trying. Give me the grace to start training. And then watch what He does. It won't be perfect. Not a day of it will be perfect. But if you keep showing up, you stay in His hands. I promise you with the authority of Scripture, when you meet Him and in your lifetime, given just a little bit longer, You'll be thrilled with what you see. You'll be thrilled the man, the woman he makes you. Father, listen to your children, some so discouraged, so heartbroken. Give them grace to believe that you are never defeated. You are always loving and gracious, ever quick to forgive, quick to give new strength, quick to give new life, Lord, to those who today may be putting their trust in you. This offering, Lord, and the extraordinary year of generosity that your children have lavished into this church, that's just one effort. That's one part of our obedience. So we ask that you would receive these commitments, these offerings, this love. In Jesus' name, amen.